Hi, you guys. This is Liz Ryan, and this is the Truth About Work podcast, episode 31. We talk about work and tell the truth about work and what's great about it and what is mm, dysfunctional about it and answer questions about work and careers and getting a job, doing the job, all that kind of stuff. It's an important topic for me because my background is HR and I've always been fascinated by people at work. And then the more I look at our system, our Western system at work, now all exported, of course, all over the world, it's not a great system and and it's time to reinvent it for people. So that's our mission, reinventing work for people. And a big way that we try to do that is by helping people wake up and feel and use their own power. Biggest, biggest thing that hit me as an HR leader, thousand years, was that people have a lot more power in the employment equation than they necessarily know they do. Even though there's countless stories of folks getting beaten down and mistreated and, you know, obnoxious behavior on the part of employers, keep in mind, part of that is to keep people off center and not feeling their power. And so to the extent that we can reclaim our power and use it, it's a really, really, really good thing for us personally, but also for everybody else. Yeah, so that's a big focus. I got some questions to answer that folks sent to me. You could send me your question too at support at humanworkplace.com. So the first question is from Nate. Simple question, Liz, do you believe the old adage, it's not what you know, it's who you know? That's such a great question, Nate. I remember when I was 19 and I moved from Chicago, uh, or rather from New York to Chicago. I had been in music school. I didn't want to do that anymore. I didn't know what to do. I went to Chicago with my friend and, and then lived there like 20 years. But at the time, it was supposed to be just for the summer. And I went there and then the summer ended and I had to get an office job because I didn't realize I was too young to serve alcohol legally as a waiter. I was like, ah, and I called my dad who was still working in, in his office in New York, a business guy. And I said, you know, anybody in Chicago, I know you do. You could make an introduction. He said, I'm not doing that. Come on. You moved to Chicago. You got to grow the muscles, get out there and get a job. He says, Liz, if I made an introduction and somebody hired you, that would dog you that label. Oh yeah. She's only here because her dad is some guy in New York who knows, you know, some guy in our company. And that would be gross. And I was like, wow, okay. That, that, Stinks in the moment, Dad. Thanks for nothing. But um, over time, I really appreciate that he that he said, no, come on, do the thing. Go get a job. It's a life skill. And it is a life skill. And I, I do not agree with this idea that it's just who you know. That, that um, diminishes the hard work so many people have put into whatever they're doing. Yeah, of course it's great to have a network. And I want everybody to have a network. But for, but for support more than more than for connections and if you get connections out of it it's fantastic but i would never want you to be daunted or put off or thought you can't do what you want to do because you don't have the network that come on no you can you can you can you can it's going to take hard work are there obstacles artificial barriers of you know policy and mindset and and inequality and all of this stuff of course of course of course yes i mean that's absolutely true. We're not diminishing or understating any of that. And that being said, it's not just about who you know. That's absurd and insulting. Um, You can do a lot regardless of who you know or don't know. So I don't want anybody to think that like there's only this tiny group of people that knows folks and they're the only ones who can do anything worthwhile or do what they want. But you know, 
that's what we hear. It's all about who you know. I don't think it's all about who you know. I do not. I mean, we see examples where there are highly unqualified people in roles they should not be in because they know somebody, but that is where we have to throw it off, throw it up to the gods and goddesses, right? And, and the laws of karma, wheel of karma takes 10,000 years or whatever to go around, but you cannot sit there and wait for those people to have their downfall or their comeuppance. That's not a good use of your time and your energy and your power and your flame waiting for people to be you know, taken down a peg. It doesn't matter. They are not central to you on your path. You carry on and you go forth with your message, right? But it's not all about who you know. Don't think so, Nate, but thanks for the question. All right, here's a question from Reva. Hi, Liz. I got my current job using a pain letter. My boss was very impressed. He still talks about it six months later. I almost hate to tell him it's a published methodology I got from you. Why do you think pain letters work? Okay, congratulations on that, Reva. Um, for folks who don't know what a pain letter is, it's a, it's a methodology that comes out of this human workplace mindset. We invented pain letters, I don't know, 15... 18 years ago, and something uh, related called a human-voiced resume. And these are a way of approaching your own hiring manager, not the HR department, not some generic talent at xyzcorp.com, but your own hiring manager, the person who will be your boss if you go into this company. And normally we recommend sending a pain letter by mail, snail mail. It still works even in these COVID-19 times, because mail in, in, in most organizations, the mailroom is still functioning. They get invoices, they get whatever. They still have to have a functioning mailroom. It's gonna be delayed. People are working at home, but you know, there's there's still some basic operational function there. And of course, if, if, if your pain letter would go unanswered, you can always send it by email or through LinkedIn if you wanted to. Although I don't recommend attachments. You know, people don't open email attachments from strangers. Um, however, a pain letter is a letter that doesn't say, here's my resume enclosed. It goes right to the heart of you are this person running a department. You, my recipient, that is the hiring manager. I see what you're doing out here. I acknowledge it. I appreciate it. It's awesome. You know, here's what I imagine you might be struggling with uh, a pain point. That's why it's called a pain letter. Uh, here's what I've done that's related or, you know, has some relevance. Uh, if we should talk, then, you know, let's start a conversation, an email correspondence or whatever. And these pain letters work very, very, very well. They take some work. You got you to gotta research these elements. Who is this person? How do I reach them? What are their most likely pain points? What's a story from my past that has some kind of relevance to this pain? You know, they take, they take an hour and a half or something to put together. I think it gets easier over time, but it's not like clicking one button to lob your resume or application into some recruiting portal, but they also have a way better result. So the question from Reva is why do pain letters work? And of course, I don't know, like I can't say definitively, but I will tell you where they came from, which is me being an HR person in the 90s and managers walking into my office saying, hey, I wanna interview this person and showing me a letter, a proto pain letter that a candidate, an applicant had written to them. And that was really impressive in the 90s before LinkedIn. How did they get that manager's name, right? But they got it and they wrote at our main office and they said, yeah, I know you guys are working on blah, 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 and I've been doing this. 
Well, the manager, of course, wants to meet this person because they're awake and aware, they're paying attention. Nothing against the folks who applied the conventional way. I mean, that's what we told them to do in our job ads, you know, it's so good for, good on them. We hired a lot of those folks too, obviously, but this pain letter person really showed the initiative. They went above and beyond. And, and I think the reason that they got interviews is the manager is kind of impressed and flattered and, and sparked, you know, here's some intellectual spark going on, which is absent from most resumes and cover letters. Again, not the candidate's fault. They were never instructed to create any kind of spark. But uh, we hired such a high percentage of those folks who sent our managers, my colleagues, uh, the proto-pain letters. I thought, well, we should teach this and came up with the pain letter methodology. And we teach it now. And what, what Reva's manager, who still mentions her, her wonderful letter six months later, undoubtedly thought that day was, oh, I'm awash in a sea of resumes and I can't tell one from the other. Here comes Reva, like cutting through that like a knife, saying, hey, I wouldn't be surprised to find that given XYZ that I read on your website, you guys might be dealing with X. I've had some experience with X. Maybe we should chat. It's not presumptuous. You're not, you're not, um, you know, um, flattering yourself to say, I absolutely know what your problem is. No, it's just like, I wouldn't be surprised. I could only imagine that you might be up against X, Y, Z. And the great thing about pain letters is that even if you're wrong with your pain hypothesis, so what? You're still showing brain activity and, and relevance and that you've taken the time and it, and they work extremely well. So my, my, my own hypothesis on that Reva is that it is the focus. Look, what is sales? Sales is backing up from the transaction you want, selling a product or service, in this case, getting a job, and backing up away from that saying, what would I as the buyer want to hear from a person trying to sell me this? Well, I would wanna hear that they're sensitive to me and my needs. I would wanna hear that they've taken the time to research my most likely needs. I would want to have that focus on me, and that's what a pain letter does. Focuses on a person a person in a role. It's not generic. And you don't reuse the same pain letter over and over with different recipients. You go right to that person, right? And say, if I were in this hiring manager's shoes, what would my most likely pain points be? What would keep me up at night? What would bother me? Oh, it's probably X, Y, and Z. So I've written a million articles. We have a course on pain letter writing, and I go into it in depth in the book, Reinvention Roadmap. But that is my my best guess at that, Reva, why pain letters work. And I think everybody should know about them. Consultants use pain letters like crazy and even pain phone calls, right? Okay. So here is Connor. Connor says, Liz, there are two predominant resume formats I'm familiar with, the reverse chronological format and the functional format. Which one do you prefer? Well, Connor, there are some people who swear by the functional resume. And so God bless if it's working. If it's working for you, then, you know, do it, do what works. That being said, as a general rule, I'm in favor of the reverse chronological. And I'll tell you why, because human beings are animals, you know, we're part of nature and we want to understand the context and the context for you showing up with a resume with or without a pain letter is your story, your story, your story, your story. What have you been doing? And they want to get that story. And that's the reverse chronological resume. 
what the functional resume does, if you're not familiar, functional resume says, I have these skills and I have, and, and they ta it talks about skills and accomplishments maybe. And then in a separate section, it goes into the chronology. Not my favorite. I, I really only talk to people who use the functional resume format when they feel weird about explaining their chronological history. Ah, this part was kind of weird. I might even drop it out, drop it out of my resume. I, it's hard to explain why I went from here to there. I feel confident that if I sat down with you, we could make beautiful sense of what might feel checkered or tangled or confusing your history, and you wouldn't need the functional resume. I think accomplishments out of context are just weird. They're floating. They don't have weight. You know, I have worked on, you know, intensive project management. No, tell me the story. I want to know the story, real human words. What was the problem? You came in, you did your project management thing. You prevailed. It was awesome. I want, I want to feel all that as though I was there. And that's a chronological resume. So that's my preference, Connor. Um, all right, Terrell. Hi, Liz. You say, do not go to HR as your first stop when things get weird at work. Why not? Mm. I'm an HR person, Terrell. And I was thrilled and delighted when people came to me. I was sorry that they had to, but I was happy that people trusted me enough to come and see me. But I didn't learn until after I left there that I was fortunate myself in that I had the ear of our higher ups. They trusted me because I had, you know, spoken my truth emphatically a lot of times before. So if an employee had a problem, and they came to me, I was going to make sure the problem was solved. You know, even if it meant you're getting sexually harassed by a VP. Okay. Yeah. No, that VP is not going to do that and stay here. They're gone. And, and it happened a few times and I started to feel my power, not power to lord it over anybody. That's horrible. I'm talking about power to make things better, right? I just wrote a book. Actually, you guys stick this in here called red blooded HR colon essays on human resources as a force for good. So I'm passionate about HR doing good stuff. But what happens is in the structure, the standard corporate and institutional structure built in the United States and Britain and the Western world and exported everywhere. Now, HR people are typically disempowered. That is not their fault. And the hate that HR people get because they are disempowered is sad to see because when we buy into these tropes, bosses are jerks, HR people are whatever, we don't, that doesn't help us. That doesn't grow our flame. See the system. I'm a theatrical person, right? See the rigging. See the, see the flies up in the air backstage. See how it all fits together. It was built this way. It was built that you could go to HR and they would say, there, there, have a hard candy from the bowl on my desk and then the problem doesn't get solved some hr people are righteous obviously and they and they will they will put their job at risk to get your problem solved and they're amazing people but their their numbers are too small and you can't rely on the fact that you're going to go to hr and your problems are going to get resolved if you have a difficult boss or a major issue going on at work or even if it's you know wage theft or something that that is a legal issue Unfortunately, if you're going to go to talk to HR about something really serious like sexual harassment or discrimination, sadly, you guys, you have to go see an employment lawyer first and very likely pay to go to that meeting. Because by the time you go to HR, which you have to do because they'll, you know, the court will throw out your claim if they say, oh, you were supposed to go to HR and you never did. And we throw out your claim. You're like, oh, great. I had to go, 
you know, to go to HR, I had to go pay a lawyer. Now I paid the lawyer and they said, yeah, keep me posted on everything that happens when you go to HR. Because if they terminate you or retaliate against you in any way for being like a whistleblower, then we'll just triple, you know, what we're asking for in terms of money. But do you want to go through all that? That's why people quit instead of going to HR. So that's dysfunction junction right there. Should go to HR. HR people might even be dying to talk to them. But do they have the juice to solve the problem? Or have they been, you know, juice deprived? And if you have to go see a lawyer for $300 before you go to HR, how many people are going to do that? So that's the brokenness in the system. It's a massive problem in employment law, but really in management practices. So rest assured, I talk to CEOs about this stuff too. But, you know, it takes wholesale, broad scale, comprehensive understanding of what's broken before it's going to get fixed. And many people are like, hey, I got to look out for myself. I've got to go get a better job. And these people have to get their learning some other way. So yeah, that's why it's kind of challenging to go to HR and get relief when you have a problem at work. All right, Paula has a question. Dear Liz, do you recommend avoiding all cattle call interviews? Okay, Paula, I just put out a um, poll. I can't remember, LinkedIn or Twitter or something about cattle call interviews. Here's my problem. Cattle call interview is when you're invited to an interview and there's a whole bunch of other candidates there for the same job, even in the same room. Now it wouldn't be obviously because of COVID, but this has been going on for years and you're all there together and they ask a question and they go through the room and everybody answers it. And it's the biggest problem is that they don't tell you typically, they don't tell you it's going to be this format. And folks ask, why would they do that and have all these people in a room? The reason is because we are wired to fit into groups and to not stand out and to put up with, you know, bad behavior on the part of interviewers. This is a prime example of bad behavior, obviously, uh, bushwhacking you, ambushing you in this group interview, which by the way, way uh, just destroys any confidentiality might've been around your job search. Yeah. Too bad for you. If it was supposed to be a quiet job search, what if there's somebody from your company, your department sitting in the room with you? interviewing it's so disrespectful it's gross you know you go you want to go on broadway you're going to go to cattle call auditions but you signed up for that you knew it was going to be that way and and you know you're not in danger by going out there and dancing with 40 other people because they're all dancers and there's nobody to rat you out to right but in a regular office job yeah that's that is a real danger but more than that it's just a Bad, bad, bad look on the part of the employer. I'm not a fan. I would never, ever recommend that any company use this awful interviewing technique. But here's the thing. Here's the reason why they do it. They do it because that group process makes it much, much more likely that the person who wins, think of Survivor, think of any reality TV show, I made it through. Out of all those people, they want me. They're going to take the job. And it might take six months or a year before that spell wears off and they realize, like, what's so great about this job? This is not a great job. If it were a great job, they wouldn't have that process, okay? This is not something that reputable, upstanding companies do. Yes, answer is, Paula, avoid cattle call interviews right? We all get desperate for a job at different times and you can take a job out of desperation, but there's nothing about that cattle call job that makes it any better than any other desperation job that you might take. And having to go through that process tells you they don't care about you. 
You are a piece of meat at that point. That's why it's called a cattle call. All righty. Let's see. We will take another question. What is it? Oh, Mallory. Dear Liz, I know you object to personal questions on a job interview, but I hope you approve of my favorite question to ask candidates, which is, what kind of person are you? Deep breathing. Mallory, you're beautiful, but you've been brainwashed. You've been brainwashed. What kind of person are you for a job interview? What does that question that is so intrusive, what kind of person are you? Somewhere in the, in the popular, you know, imagination, in our cultural, whatever, uh, a theme, frame, mental model for work, we decided in the 50s maybe, the 40s, the 60s, I don't know, before my time as an HR person or a working person that, that a job interview is like a psychoanalytical session and that interviewers are therapists and they sit there jotting down notes. What kind of person are you on a job interview is so insulting, Mallory. I want you to see that. It's part of your maturation process and part of growing your own flame. It's insulting. What do you do on your free time? Why is that any of your business? We, we put interviewers on a higher social plane and they're looking down their nose at the candidate. What do you do in your free time? Why are we talking about that? The weird thing is that if you wrote up a job spec and you wanted help in your company, that's a weakness. What are your weaknesses? I, we're here because of your weakness. We're here because you can't get the work done. You have a problem in your business that could only be solved by hiring somebody. So why are we talking about my weaknesses or even assuming that I have any? You're the one with the freaking demonstrated weakness that caused you to publish a job ad. Can we bring this conversation back to the real world? You've got a problem. And I'm here to talk about your problem. Just like a painter who comes over because you call the painter because you have paint chips coming off your house, right? Or the landscaper or the electrician. It's all the same. You got a problem. And here's the thing, you guys. We don't insult the painter. We don't insult the landscape architect. We don't insult these people because in our culture, we give independent business people more respect than job candidates. That's a feudal F-E-U-D-A-L idea. Oh, you need a job? Ha, ha, ha. Well, little peasant, kneel down. And we don't do that to business people. They get more respect. So let's, let's imagine they did a job spec for this job, whatever it is, Mallory, let's say it's a, you know, it's a senior customer service agent. And at the last minute, your boss is about to look at resumes and they say, you know, I just had an idea. I don't know how long we're going to need this person. They really need to do a couple of big projects. And I don't want to lay them off after that, be bad for the team morale. And it would be bad for the unemployment tax rate that we pay. Let's hire a consultant. Now, instead of interviewing candidates, consultants come in. And they talk to you about their capabilities. And you know what? Nobody would ever ask that consultant looking to do work for your company. What kind of person are you? It's not appropriate. And we know that. In that context, we know that. And we don't ask the intrusive questions. But for some blinking reason, we think it's fine to ask job seekers, what kind of person are you? Who could even answer that? What, what, what do you mean? In what respect? And are, are we going to have sex? Like, who are you? Are you my girlfriend, boyfriend? Are you my therapist or my spiritual advisor? Why would you think it's okay to ask me, what kind of person are you? Really, what we should be talking about is what kind of customer service agent am I? Let's talk about the role. 
We have to get rid of this brainwashing, you guys, that a job interview is some kind of therapy session or that a job interviewer is just by virtue of their business card qualified to assess someone's psychological makeup. What kind of person are you? It's not the worst interview question I've ever heard, but it's it's right up there in the top 10. Yes, Mallory, don't ask that question anymore, okay? But thank you for writing. I appreciate it. Yeah, you can send me a question too. It's uh, uh, support at humanworkplace.com. I hope you'll follow us, spread the word, and help us get the word out here about the Truth About Work podcast. I really appreciate you listening. You can follow us also on Twitter, Human Workplace, Facebook, Human Workplace, and on LinkedIn. It's plain old. My name, Liz Ryan.